0: Well, thank you so much, SOAR team, for leading our service today and for inspiring us with uh, what God's been teaching you and what you've been learning and experiencing so far, and we just want to, as a church family, continue to pray for all of you as you continue this experience. My name is Don, and I'm not on the SOAR team. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to continue our series in the book of Matthew called Kingdom, Kingdom Culture. And so just before I dive into that, though, uh, would you please bow with me in a word of prayer? Let's pray. Well, Lord God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity to be encouraged through the, the beautiful songs we sang, all the hope that was there in those prayers. And thank you for uh, this SOAR team. And I just pray your protection and blessing and learning and favor over all of them as they continue this experience. Lord, we thank you that um, your love for us is so incredible. We thank you for your presence in our lives and your presence in our church, even as we have to meet in all these virtual ways. We thank you that your power is so evident and real and spiritual that it goes even beyond the physical limitations. And so we just praise you and we thank you for that. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the living word, that you ultimately are the word of God. And so, Lord Jesus, as we look at your words today, I ask, Holy Spirit of God, that you will just bring the words to life in all of our lives. Lord, I lay down my feeble words, Lord, but I pray that your word, the words of Jesus from your word, from your scripture, will powerfully go forth today. Encourage us, Holy Spirit. Empower us, Holy Spirit. We give ourselves to you, and we pray this all together in Jesus' name. Amen. So our series is called Kingdom Culture as I said earlier, from the book of Matthew. And I had the privilege of starting this series back in the beginning of January, and I opened with a question that I want to bring up again. And that question is simply this. So what kind of culture do you want? What kind of culture do we want as we look at our nation, as we look at the church? What are we really hoping for, dreaming for? And in the book of Matthew, 33 times Jesus refers to the kingdom of heaven, and presents a kingdom culture that is incredibly different than I think that anything we even hope or imagine. So back to our question, what kind of culture do we want when we look at our world, look at our nation? I'm sure there are many of us that are really concerned for our country. When we think about Canada, we think of growing atheism. We think of the loss of value in religious gathering and congregation. And that can be grieving for many of us. Perhaps for some of you, and perhaps you're somewhat my age or older, you may be longing for the good old days, the days when Christianity was the dominant voice in our culture. And there may have been some good in that, but I also want to remind you that history isn't kind to when Christendom or Christianity mixed with culture and mixed with politics. And so I'm not sure we want to go back, and I'm not not sure we're excited about certain things we see in the present and in the future, but what kind of kingdom are we dreaming of? Can we move beyond fear? Can we move beyond loss? And can we move towards hope and possibility? The very kind of kingdom culture that Jesus spoke about. So what is the kingdom of heaven? To define it, I want to use a quote from, this guy has a great name, a great name author named Sky Jethani, wrote a book called What If Jesus Was Serious? And he's writing about the Sermon on the Mount. Anyway, he puts it this way. The kingdom of heaven is not the church. It's not where God's people go after death. It is the realm where God rules and evil is powerless. Jesus announced that his kingdom was now at hand, meaning it is within our reach. The kingdom of heaven has broken into our world, and a new way of life is now possible. Can we embrace this? Can we embrace this kind of hope and possibility that the kingdom that Jesus taught, the kingdom we're learning about in the book of Matthew, can still transform lives and can still transform nations? We make that a prayer and a dream as we continue to study God's word together. Now, a couple weeks ago, Pastor Chandra started um, Matthew chapter 5, which begins the key section of Matthew, chapter 5, 6, and 7, that is famously called the Sermon on the Mount. And this is Jesus's, I guess, most famous and also most demanding and controversial teaching and sermon. And I wonder if it isn't this part of the scripture, this part of the Bible, that Mark Twain was thinking about when he said these words that are famously attributed to him. Apparently he said, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't, that I can't understand that bother me, it's the parts that I do understand. And I think if you read the last half of Matthew chapter 5 and those incredible extreme examples that Jesus gives, you might feel just like him. Now I want you to imagine for a moment the days before the pandemic when you actually got up in the morning to go to church. I know some of you are like, Really? we did that? I can barely remember. Anyway, if you can remember coming to church, walking in, no masks, sitting, worship, crowded. Anyway, that's not really my point. I just thought it would be fun to talk about that. But anyway, the speaker gets up and he starts to speak and the first words out of his mouth are, well, you've heard it said in the scriptures or the Bible says this, but I say, so what's your reaction? Well, at first you would think that maybe they're kidding and they're just trying to make a point. But then if they carry on with that idea, you'd start to get really uncomfortable. And maybe before too long, you might want to get the ushers or whatever to boot the person out as a heretic. Well, i I'll illustrate that because what I, want to, what I want to point us to in the Scripture today is this is actually what Jesus did. Jesus gathered the crowds together, a crowd of devout Jewish people, who loved the law, loved the prophets, loved their holy, sacred scriptures that they called Torah. And so Jesus gets up and goes, you've heard it said, the Torah said, the law said, but now I say. And if you want to wonder how angered or charged they were at, at or bewildered they were at that, they definitely were. And so you can kind of understand where they were coming from and even as we try to imagine the scriptures today. So we want to begin in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 to 20, where Jesus begins this teaching. Now, after this, the beginning of his teaching, the rest of Matthew 5 are six extreme examples, real provocative examples that Jesus gives to illustrate this whole idea that you've heard it said, the law says, but I say. But before he goes there, let's look into what Jesus' teaching is here now in a... Uh, In Matthew chapter 5, so reading at verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside Even one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So, what does Jesus mean when he says that he came to fulfill the law? Eugene Peterson, in the message, uses the word completes, that Jesus came to complete the law. If you're looking at the New Living Translation, NLT, Jesus is quoted as saying, I came to accomplish their purpose. So it's important for us to understand that Jesus is not in any way devaluing the law or the Old Testament scriptures as we know them today. But Jesus is also making it clear that he has the authority to re envision or reinterpret or to bring a fuller understanding of what God really meant and to reveal God's true character. One theologian by the name of Scott McKnight suggests that what Jesus is doing is radical revisioning without abolishing. It's really important that we understand that Jesus honors all Scripture, but that he both has the final authority on Scripture. And also that he is the final authority. You see, ultimately we worship Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of the word. He is the word of God. And so when we read all scripture, and especially Old Testament scripture, in a sense we need to put on Jesus glasses. We need to have a Jesus lens to view all of scripture. And when we have that lens... There's so many things that begin to make sense that maybe didn't make sense before. You know, sadly, I know many people who have walked away from faith because they just couldn't deal with much of the violent pictures of God in the Old Testament. And yet, when we understand Jesus as the Word of God and how we can view and understand Scripture through that Jesus lens, through that Jesus authority Many of those things can be understood in a way that makes so much sense to the true heart and character of God. You see, the ancient Hebrews called God Yahweh. That was their holy name for Him. And all through the Old Testament, Yahweh continues to try to reveal Himself and reveal His character. And yet the people of the ancient world... They were so immersed in their culture of how they understood the gods. The gods were violent and vindictive, and they had so many preconceived ideas of how the gods worked in ancient culture, and it was so hard for them to understand this radical different god, this Yahweh, that said that he was loving and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love. So all through, God is trying to reveal himself, and yet they didn't fully understand. We don't fully understand God until we see Jesus. Jesus. See, again, Jesus isn't just a representation. Jesus is the word. He has the authority and he is the authority. And so it's so important that we understand that and we understand these examples that Jesus is going to give. Now, verse 20 of the passage we just read, Jesus says and challenges us that if we want to be righteous, we've got to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees. So what does he mean by that? Now, if you grew up in church or grew up around the Bible and Bible stories, this might seem simple to you because you probably, when you hear the word Pharisee, you just simply think hypocrite. Often for people who know the Bible, Pharisees and hypocrites are basically the same thing. Now, Jesus was hard on this group of people called the Pharisees, and often they were very legalistic and hypocritical. But we also need to understand that these Pharisees were a Jewish political group or a Jewish sect that were actually the most bold, actually the most devout um, to Torah, to the Scriptures, and to following and serving God. They were incredibly devout. So if Jesus is saying that our righteous need, righteousness needs to surpass the Pharisees, I don't think he's saying that we need to outlaw them, we need to outgood them, we, out, we need to outtheology them, we need to outtruth them, we need to outserve them. I think what Jesus is getting at is that we need to understand that the ultimate righteousness is learning to love the way God loves, learning to love the way Jesus loves. A love that doesn't rely on tradition, but a love that relies on a pure heart. And so that's the kind of righteousness that Jesus is calling us to. Now in the next verses in Matthew chapter 5, there's uh, the rest of the chapter, I, I said earlier, are six examples and six extreme examples that Jesus gives. So if you've heard of extreme sports, this can be Jesus's extreme sports, that he's, he's going to give some examples here that to the people of the day would have just been radical and extreme, and they would have been, what on earth are you talking about here, Jesus? This is so ridiculous, we can barely stand it. Even today, when we read these six examples, they are so controversial and so difficult for us to interpret. Now, scholars tell us that of these these six examples, um, Jesus will begin each one by saying, you have heard, or "The the law tells us, but I tell you. And so he does this at the beginning of each one. Scholars tell us that these are divided up into two triads. The first three basically focus on loving your neighbor, And the last three focus more on loving your enemies. Now, next week, Pastor Bruce is going to focus on the loving your neighbor side of these examples. And I'm just going to look at the last two today to illustrate on what Jesus is saying. So let's go down to uh, verse 38 that was read earlier. uh, Chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 38. says, You've heard it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks of you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So Jesus begins by saying, you've all heard it said, you know what the law says, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And basically what Jesus is explaining is what's commonly known as the law of retribution. And the law of retribution is simply that the punishment equals the crime. So it made perfect, logical sense in their culture that this makes sense, this is what the law should teach, this is right, this is fair. But Jesus opposes this very logical idea, and then not only does he oppose it, but he gives even more ridiculous examples to them as to how they're supposed to live in the opposite spirit of that very logical law. So when he says, if someone slaps you across the face, and in that culture, that left-handed, back-handed slap across your right cheek was the biggest insult that someone could give you. It was so degrading to be slapped like that. So what Jesus is saying, though, accept humiliation a complete upside-down kingdom idea. Then then he says, so if someone wants to sue you for your shirt, give them your coat. You see, in that culture, their, their inner garment was their shirt, and their, their main outer garment was their cloak. It was very, very important to them. Now, the people knew that they were already protected by the law. The law said that you could never take away someone's outer coat. It was basically a human right to respect the poor and, and the middle class because they probably only had one coat. So it would have been ridiculous to them to say that if someone wants to see you for your shirt, give them your coat too. But that's, again, Jesus giving these extreme examples to make his point. And then the worst one was he's telling them to serve their enemy. You see, at that time, The Jews were being controlled by the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire were very cruel overlords that that caused all kinds of pain and suffering and grief and injustice. They, They hated the Romans, and they especially hated the Roman military. But Roman soldiers were allowed to pick any random citizen, and they were forced to walk a mile with them and carry their gear for them. And so Jesus says, these enemies that you hate, don't just carry their gear one mile, carry it two. So, I just want you to see how, to those people and in that culture, this was incredible. How on earth could Jesus be saying these ridiculous things that are so opposite of what we think is the right and logical way to live, the way our law tells us to live? And yet, Jesus has the audacity you've heard it said, the law says, but I say. Jesus says, I got a new law for you. Guess what? No more revenge no more vindication, no more your rights matter the most. I have a new law that says forgiveness and reconciliation and generosity is how you live in the kingdom culture. Let's go down now to the the next verses, verse 43. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy, So I already told you about the Roman government and the Roman military that were oppressing the people at the time of Jesus. These people were very easily identified by them as enemies. And if you read the history of the Jewish people, they'd they'd had over 500 years of just incredible injustice done to them through their whole nation. They had so many enemies and so much in them that wanted revenge, that wanted vengeance, that wanted vindication. And and if you know their stories and you know the atrocities that were done, it would be so hard to blame them. And yet, Jesus is saying to them something that wasn't quite in the law. The law doesn't say hate your enemies, but it was basically assumed by how they understood loving their neighbors. You see, their neighbors were basically, in their understanding, their tribe their people, the people who thought like them, lived like them, their group, their safety net. Those are my neighbors. I love them. But those Roman scum, we can hate them. They're the enemy. And so in the midst of that, Jesus says, love your enemies. In fact, pray for those who persecute you. How extreme and how ridiculous to the people listening. So we can understand their context, but now what about ours? Who are our enemies? This was difficult for me to think about. I would like to think that I don't really have enemies. Not really. I mean, I would like to think of myself as, you know, like when you read the Psalms and there's so many of those Psalms that have prayers about, God, vindicate me and smash my enemies. And like, you know, I don't like really pray those things over my enemies, do I? And anyway, who are our enemies? Well I think when we begin thinking about that, I'll, I'll share with you sort of my the way my mind went as I thought about this. Firstly, I thought about you know, and this was a, an easier one, but to think about people in our world who who basically initiate or promote evil, all of the injustices, all of the all of the the kind of evil things that happen in the world, and the people that that just misuse people and and how heartbreaking that is to know about those things in our world. We can can certainly look at the people who would propagate that and go, yeah, those, those, those people can be our enemies. But when we get a little more personal and we start thinking about our own lives and our own journeys, probably what first comes to mind is we think about people who have hurt us, people who oppose us, people who mock us or who have been against us or thwarted our progress in life. Those people can feel like enemies. And as I thought about the people who, had, who have hurt me in my life, I felt a certain amount of sadness and shame over how I've thought of them and treated them as enemies. I, I didn't react or seek revenge necessarily, but sometimes our biggest act of reacting to the enemies in our lives is to cut people off. And that can be such a hurtful thing and yet it can be such a protective thing. And I had to just bring that to the Lord and say, Lord, I've done that and forgive me. I've I've allowed people who've hurt me to become enemies, sometimes in in a wrong way and in a way that, that impacted me and my heart so much. You know, as I thought about this more, how do we think about people who live very differently than we do? People who embrace in our culture or our communities very different lifestyles and very different views on the kinds of morality and lifestyles that they live? Does some of our reaction to that cause us to put them in the camp of enemies? What about people who think differently, believe differently, have a very different culture, a very different belief system? Do we sometimes see them as enemies? And then as I thought about this more, I thought, what about people within our spiritual community? I started to think about, what about people that are my brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet, you know, because we have opposing views on so many things, I sometimes allow some of those people to to become my enemies. What about people who, again, they're, they're within our community of faith, but perhaps they have very different views on politics than us. Perhaps they have very different views on social justice and sexuality than we do. They may have different views on how the church should respond and how the church should function or live out our faith. And I just felt really convicted in my spirit that, yeah, I want to gravitate to the authors and the people that think and feel and are passionate about the things I am. And sadly, at times, those that think and feel and act differently, have I made them enemies. And I had to confess that in my spirit. So, as we respond to these words of Jesus, these incredibly countercultural, these incredibly upside down kingdom, this kingdom culture that Jesus is calling us to, wow, it's incredible and really hard to live. It means that we have to do a lot of heart surgery in order to look at our motives and the way we treat people. I want to close with a quote from one commentator named Rodney Reeves, who puts it this way. We already know what love, perfect love, looks like. It's refusing to take revenge. It's admitting we have enemies and then loving them, even helping them so much that righteous people could accuse us of treason. See, Jesus ended this passage By saying, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now when we first read that, that's very intimidating because we think, oh man, I give up now. I can never be perfect. And yet we kind of misunderstand what perfection means biblically, spiritually. You see, it's not about sinlessness or getting rid of all the mistakes and flaws in our life. Actually, perfection is measured in how we love. Perfection is when we love the way Jesus loves. When we love the way the Father loves, that sacrificial, all-giving, life-laying-down kind of love. If we can ever love like Jesus loves, that's perfection. Are we ever going to get there in this lifetime? Probably not, but that's the goal. So it's, again, it's not a perfection about, can I get my theology right? Can I get all the rules right? Can I get all the laws right? No. The perfection that we're striving for is to love like Jesus, to live like Jesus, to be like Jesus. And so as I call you to respond today, I want you to respond to the call of Jesus. Perhaps repentance of admitting who our enemies are, giving that to Jesus, and then asking him to fill us with power and love to respond like him. Going to ask the worship team if they'll come up now and join me. And they're going to close in a song, a song called Good Good Father. A song that is about the incredible love of God. And I'll encourage you that as we worship along or pray along or just listen along, let's respond to this song. The only way that we can love like Jesus is when we respond first to the incredible love of God. We can love because he loved us first. He demonstrated that perfect self-sacrificing, laying down his life kind of love. That's our way to him. That's our way to a kingdom culture, to a Jesus culture. So let's respond to him.